Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, February 27, 2022. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, um, are you familiar with pet shaming? Uh, anyone who has a pet should know about it. it trust me, it sounds uh, way worse than it actually is. Uh, uh, we love, those of us who are pet owners, love our furry family members, but sometimes they just absolutely drive you bonkers with how they act. So here's a few pet shaming photos that I found during this past week. I made my dad jump when I farted while he was watching a horror film. Cat, I have been fed. My meows are lies. Or this guy, three hours after dad hung the new screen door, I came through it like the Kool-Aid man. (laughs) Uh, This cat, I looked my mom in the eye whilst I peed on her hoodie. Yes. Uh, The glitter looked dangerous, so I took it to my bed and I killed it. You are welcome. Uh, I eat puzzle pieces. Look at that face. Oh, my goodness. This sign says, Pan is a glutton. Do not be fooled. Please do not feed him. The vet bills are extraordinary. (laughs) Nothing like fat shaming for the whole neighborhood to see, right? Uh, And this one? We ate toilet paper during the great TP shortage of 2020. (laughs) Uh, And this one sign says, Mom's underwear is not a present for guests. Hashtag underwear bandit uh, at disabled but not defeated. And then finally, my mama brought out the nativity set and I peed on the Virgin Mary. (laughs) Oh, my. By the way, if you like those, uh, you can pick up the Dog Shaming 2022 calendar. But be careful. Not everyone in your household may find it funny. I ate the Dog Shaming calendar. (laughs) Well, welcome to the sixth and final installment of our current sermon series entitled Stranger, Finding God in Unexpected Places. And for the past month and a half, we've been looking at some very interesting passages in the Bible. Passages where God showed up at an unexpected time or in an unexpected place or in an unexpected appearance. And and they have been some of the stranger passages in the Bible, haven't they? Once we dive in deep, though, and examine them closely, we found they're so uh, challenging and encouraging. The series was inspired by Dr. Krishkandaya's powerful book, Stranger, What Happens When God Shows Up. Dr. Kandaya received his PhD from King's College in London. He's the founder and director of Home for Good, a British charity that finds homes for foster children and young refugees. Well, I started with the pet shaming photos because in today's final episode of the series, we'll also discover a bit of Messiah shaming taking place, but we'll get to that in a moment. Jesus was an expert at welcoming the unexpected in his life and his endeavors. 
His parents hosted uncouth shepherds and unclean foreigners at his birth. Jesus' entire adult life and ministry was marked by the pattern of, shall we say, keeping inappropriate company. In Luke's gospel, this is what angers the religious leaders the most, that that he chooses to spend time with what they refer to as sinners. Luke 7, 34, the son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In fact, Luke uses the word sinners 18 times in his gospel. Matthew only uses it a mere four times. Of course, recognizing that everyone is a sinner, today we could substitute the word strangers. And that would probably make us feel just as uncomfortable as it did for the Pharisees back in Jesus' day. But while the religious leaders, well, they mean it as an insult that Jesus spends time with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus proudly wears it as a badge of honor. In 2007, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons wrote a groundbreaking book, Unchristian, what a new generation really thinks about Christianity and why it matters. In it, they share uh, results from a Barner Research Group survey of 16 to 30-year-olds who are not part of a church community, all right? So 16 to 30 years old, no connection to a faith community. You want to guess what the top three words that they used to describe the reputation of the Christian church? Anti-homosexual, judgmental, hypocritical. Again, that's from people outside of the church. That's what they see of us. Dr. Kandaya writes, We are supposed to be following in the footsteps of one who is criticized for being a friend of sinners, and yet we are known more for our fault-finding than our friendship. It's vital that we as the church begin to rebuild our reputation based on the actual principles that Jesus stood for. Each week in this Stranger series, I've been reading the single-sentence summary that Dr. Ngadiah puts at the beginning of each chapter to kind of give you a, a, a hint of where he is heading. Here's what he says for this installment. Chapter 11, in which a dying man makes a promise to a stranger and we steal a vital insight or two from thieves. So I invite you to take your Bibles out, open them up, or your smartphones, and uh, uh, you can open up the church app and click on Bible, and it'll take you right to the chapter that we're reading. In this case, it's Luke chapter 23. Uh, Just be sure to scroll down to the verse we're starting at, which is verse 32. Luke 23, beginning at verse 32. Two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, Luke calls them criminals. Matthew and Mark call them bandits, which back in Jesus' day had the same effect that the word terrorist has for us today. Luke's word could also be translated as uh, evildoers or malcontents. And no matter what it is that they're called, uh, they, along with Jesus, are about to be executed by crucifixion. Now, notice how few words Luke uses here. He simply says that they, were cruci- they crucified Jesus there with the criminals. Luke assumes that his readers are familiar with the process of crucifixion, so no further explanation was necessary. 
Fred Craddock explains that the cross was literally an impaling stick, which may or may not have included a second piece of wood as a crossbeam. And as early as the time of the Persians, bodies of criminals, dead or living, were put on public display via crucifixion as a deterrent to crime. Apparently, the Romans are the ones who uh, uniformly added the crossbeam, though crosses continue to take a variety of shapes and sizes. The Roman Empire made it a standard form of execution for common criminals because it added shame, pain, and a very slow death. In fact, it would take, on average, three to four days for a person to die once they were crucified. Their death would occur because of exhaustion and uh, asphyxiation. They would be unable to get enough oxygen into their lungs. Commentator Jay Noland describes it as a form of execution by torture. It was about as cruel and barbaric as any deterrent dreamed up by humankind. The idea was to prolong the death agony for all to see and be warned. Dr. Kundaya likened crucifixion in Jesus' day to the barbaric beheading videos of ISIS today, that it was meant to spread both terror and fear. Verse 34, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, depending on which Bible translation you have, you'll either see a uh, a parenthesis or possibly a footnote here uh, on this verse. Some of the ancient Uh, manuscripts don't actually have this verse, and yet, according to many biblical scholars, including John T. Carroll, a compelling case has been made for its authenticity. Richard Vinson goes so far as to even say this, this is one of the most significant features of Luke's narrative. No other early Christian source suggests that Jesus asked God to forgive those who were executing him making this verse one of the most profound examples of how Jesus is teaching on nonviolence, non-retaliation, and forgiveness are to be lived out. Jesus could have cried out for justice and retribution. Uh, He was put there for crimes that he did not commit. But no, instead of crying out for himself, Jesus instead prays for the pardon of his enemies. That is love in action, friends. Love and action. He's pleading for God's grace for both the Romans who are having him executed and for his fellow Jews who have not only willingly rejected him, but they're standing by taunting and insulting him. Jesus is using his physical and spiritual power not for himself in these last few moments of his life on earth, but in overflowing and grace-filled excess for strangers and enemies alike. On October 2nd, 2006, in the Amish community of Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, a tragedy occurred. In the one-room schoolhouse of West Nickel Mines School, gunman Charles Carl Roberts IV killed 10 schoolgirls ages 6 to 13 before taking his own life. In the aftermath of this horrific incident, Amish parents sent out words of forgiveness for the family of the one who had slain their children. Their forgiveness, however, was more than mere words. Fresh from the funerals where they buried their own children, grieving Amish families attended the the burial of the 32-year-old non-Amish killer. Of the 75 in attendance, over half were from the Amish community. 
The families greeted the killer's wife and their three children. Plans were set to continue conversations between the families of the killer and the killed. The Amish even helped set up a fund for the assassin's family. That is the kind of love that Jesus expressed in Luke 23, 34, when he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Verse 34, and they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by watching. But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Dr. Kandiah rightly points out that Jesus is put to death, surrounded by opposition, degradation, mockery, and humiliation, because nobody, it seems, recognized him as being God's son. In fact, throughout his entire ministry, people had misconceptions about who Jesus was and what the Messiah was supposed to be, or should be, about. We see them, in effect, trying to goad Jesus into doing something dramatic. I mean, let's see something good, Mr. Messiah. Show us what you got. Come on. Of course, they didn't actually believe that he could uh, save himself. Their ignorance is so much of what Jesus just prayed for forgiveness for. The reality, of course, is that Jesus could have come down from the cross. He could have called down legions of angels to rescue him. He could have called upon God for help. Uh, and to remove the suffering from him, but he didn't. In fact, Fred Craddock puts it so succinctly, and he says, if he is, in the larger sense, to save others, then he cannot save himself. Because Jesus knows the bigger picture. Jesus knows why he's been put on this earth to live a life of love and grace and radical obedience to God. And yes, he could have saved himself, but that would just be one person. Instead, he chose to save the entire world. Even those who ridiculed and insulted him along the way. Verse 38, there was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. And here's where we go from pet shaming to Messiah shaming. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor in the region, was the one who authorized the inscription above the cross. In fact, the charge over Jesus' head, called the uh, titulus in Latin, was a regular feature of Roman crucifixions. It spelled out the nature of the offense that had led to this person's execution. Sometimes it was carried before the condemned as he uh, went up to be crucified. Other times it hung around his neck. In Luke's account, one of the charges that was made against Jesus by the Jewish high council was that he claimed to be the Messiah, a king. Pilate, after having Jesus whipped and beaten, made sure that everyone saw the kind of king that, they, that the Jews had brought to him. He wanted the whole world to know that this victim, bleeding, suffering, dying, could never live up to the title of king. It was a title that was intended to be ironic. But never were more true words ever spoken. So here's Jesus, having lived a life of love and grace and empowerment forced to endure undeserved callousness and cruelty. Now he's dying on a cross, facing unrelenting verbal hostility. What's the common saying? Uh, No good deed goes unpunished. And yet, could it be that it's precisely at this moment that most endears Jesus to us as human beings? In his book, The Cross of Christ, 
John Stott writes this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But, but this man has done nothing wrong. It's interesting as Luke is the only gospel writer who includes this conversation between Jesus and the two people on either side of him on their crosses. Criminal number one, despite uh, having his life slowly draining out of him, decides now is a good time to heap insults upon the man in the middle, right? Save yourself and us, he jeers. And he's doing a great job of keeping up the taunting that has already been flowing freely at the place called the skull. But his is not the last word, because there's another person being crucified that day. We'll call him criminal number two. Ken Geyer, in his devotional book, Moments with the Savior, writes this. It is the last kind word said to Jesus before he died, spoken not by a religious leader, nor by the disciple whom he loved, nor even by his mother standing at his feet, but by a common thief. We know nothing about that criminal on the cross next to Christ. We don't know how much he stole or how often, from whom or why. We only know he is a thief a wayward son over whom some mother's heart has been broken, over whom some father's hopes have been shattered. Dr. Kundaya notes that speaking would have been extremely difficult for anyone on a cross because of the macabre methodology of crucifixion. You see, it's the weight of the body that, that drags a person down, not the nails that do the killing, right? Those just offer immediate pain. But as the body sags, it becomes harder and harder for the person to catch their breath. And over time, as exhaustion sets in, as I mentioned before, they literally die of suffocation. And yet this person chooses to use what little energy he has left to counter the mockery of his fellow malcontent. Now, it would be interesting, wouldn't it, to, to understand how it was that criminal number two has come to feel this way about Jesus. Had he been following Jesus' public ministry over the years? Maybe he heard him speak in person? Or, or was he being held in chains when Jesus had his public trial before Pilate? Maybe he was able to see the ridiculousness of the charges that were brought against Jesus. We, we don't know. But something within him was able to see what no one else was able to see. Verse 42, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Everyone, including Jesus' own disciples, had been wanting Jesus' kingdom to be here and now, right? To overthrow the Romans, to offset centuries of injustice. Even Pilate couldn't see the kind of king that Jesus truly was. But this criminal, he sees that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Isn't it interesting that it's often 
the marginalized and rejected who recognize Jesus' identity before the rest of us. Now, Jesus responds by giving him way more than he asked for, right? I won't just remember you, says Jesus. When I get into paradise, you're going to be my plus one, right? Now, in case we haven't been paying attention, Jesus has a preferential option for the poor and the outcast, and that's on display here for all to see. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, he spent time with those people that the rest of the world shunned, cast aside, disregarded, counted as rubbish. So it should come as no surprise to us that in his final action on earth, it is to forgive and reconcile a wayward yet beloved child of God. Luke 19.10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Father Greg Boyle is the founder and executive director of Homeboy Industries here in Los Angeles. His book, Tattoos on the Heart, is a powerful collection on insights into the gang communities of the Boyle Heights neighborhood, as well as some incredible stories of his interactions with, as he calls them, the homies. Near the end of his book, Father Boyle says this, Success and failure ultimately have little to do with living the gospel. Jesus just stood with the outcasts until they were welcomed or until he was crucified, whichever came first. His words challenge us to reconsider whether we are trying to live a life that's successful or a life that's faithful. I want to finish my sermon and this series with one final story from Father Greg, and I will be telling it uh, in his words as he wrote it. On a Saturday in 1996, I am set to baptize George at Camp Munns. By the way, George is, or Camp Munns is a youth correctional facility uh, down in L.A. He delays doing this with the other priests because he only wants me to do it. He also wants to schedule the event to follow his successful passing of the GED exam. He sees it as something of a twofer celebration. I actually know 17-year-old George and his 19-year-old brother, Cisco. Both are gang members from a barrio in the projects, but I've only really come to know George over his nine-month stint in the camp. I've watched him move gradually from his hardened posturing to being a man in possession of himself and his gifts. Taken out of the environment that keeps him unsettled and crazed, not surprisingly, he begins to thrive at Camp Munns. Now he's utterly unrecognizable. The hard vato with his gangster pose has morphed into a thoughtful, measured man, aware of gifts and talents previously obscured by the unreasonable demands of gang life. The Friday night before George's baptism, Cisco, George's brother, is walking home before midnight when the quiet is shattered, as it is so often in his neighborhood, by gunshots. Some rivals creep up and open fire, and Cisco falls in the middle of St. Louis Street, half a block from his apartment. He's killed instantly. His girlfriend, Annel, nearly eight months pregnant with their first child, runs outside. She cradles Cisco in her arms and lap, rocking him as if to sleep, and her screams syncopate with every motion forward. 
She continues this until the paramedics pry him away from her arms. I don't sleep much that night. It occurs to me to cancel my presence at the Mass the next morning at Camp Munns to be with Cisco's grieving family, but then I remember George and his baptism. When I arrive before Mass with all the empty chairs in place in the mess hall, there's George standing by himself holding his newly acquired GED certificate. He heads toward me, waving his GED and beaming. We hug each other. He's in a borrowed iron crisp white shirt with a thin black tie. His pants, well, they're the regular camp issue camouflage, green and brown. I'm completely wiped out, yet trying to keep up my excitement on pace with George's. At the beginning of the mass, with the mess hall now packed, I ask him, what is your name? George Martinez, he says, with an overflow of confidence. And George, what do you ask of God's church? Baptism, he says, with a steady, barely contained smile. It's the most difficult baptism of my life. For as I pour water over George's head, Father... Son, Holy Spirit, I know that I will walk George outside alone afterwards and tell him what happened. As I do, I put my arm around him and I whisper gently as we walk out onto the baseball field, George, your brother Cisco was killed last night. I can feel the air leave his body as he heaves a sigh that finds itself a sob in an instant. We land on a bench, his face seek refuge in open palms, he sobs quietly. Most notable, however, is what isn't present in the rocking and gentle wailing. I, unfortunately, have been in this place before many, many times, and there is always flailing and rage and promises to avenge things. But there's none of this in George. It's as if the commitment he has just made in water, oil, and flame has taken hold, and his grief is pure and true, and it most resembles the heartbreak of God. George seems to offer proof of the efficacy of this thing we call sacrament, and he manages to hold all the complexity of this Great sadness right here on this bench in his tender weeping. I had previously asked him in the baptismal rite, after outlining the contours of faith and the commitment to live as though this were true, do you clearly understand what you are doing, I asked. And he pauses and he revs himself up, gathering himself and soul, and he says, yes, I do. And yes, Yes, he does. In the monastic tradition, the highest form of sanctity is to live in hell and not lose hope. George clings to his hope and his faith and his GED certificate, and he chooses to march resilient into his future. Sometimes, writes Father Greg, resilience arrives in the moment you discover your own unshakable goodness. Poet Galway Cannell writes, sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing 
its loveliness. Maybe that's what happened on those three crosses that day some 2,000 years ago. Jesus met a stranger, a stranger who saw the goodness in the man being crucified next to him. And instead of being bitter and angry, instead of hurling insults at the man along with everyone else there, he offers a word of kindness. And in that moment, this stranger receives forgiveness, reconciliation, and also just may have discovered his own unshakable goodness. Today, you will be with me in paradise. What a love. What a gift. What a savior. That's Jesus. Friend of sinners and strangers. People like criminal number two, or George, or Cisco, or even you and me. The only question now is, will we, as followers of Jesus, also stand alongside the same people Jesus did? Will we, too, be known as friends of sinners and strangers? Because, my brothers and sisters, in the end, success and failure ultimately have little to do with living the gospel. Jesus just stood with the outcasts until they were welcomed or until he was crucified. Whichever came first. May we do the same. By the grace of God, may we welcome the stranger whenever and wherever we find them. Remembering that God has already done so much more for us. All God's people said...